Good morning again. We're at Ephesians chapter 2. This is Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a big city in the first century on the west coast of what we now today call Turkey. This is his letter to them. Almost all the way to the end of the Bible, it's a little letter there. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. We're going to read and study all of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, there is so much in this passage, so rich, so many beautiful truths. Help us this morning as we look at all of it to see the goodness of your grace and how deeply we need it. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The world was transfixed in 2018 by the rescue of a youth soccer team deep underground in Thailand. Many of you know about this. I think there's a movie that just came out about it. Twelve teenage boys and their coach had scurried a mile and a half underground 
through nine caverns before it had all suddenly flooded. It took 10 days for the world's greatest cave divers to reach them, all of whom were well used to retrieving dead bodies. But when they did finally find this soccer team, they were amazed to see that they were all still barely alive. But they, to save them, did not just give them a map and say, well, you're kind of lost. Here's how you get out of here. Uh, They did not bring them flashlights and say, well, it's pretty dark down here. This will help you. Uh, They did not even say, well, why don't you start swimming? And if you get behind, uh, get tired, we'll give you a bit of a boost and help you get all the way out. Uh, Here's what they did. Lest the boys panic during their return journey and so kill themselves and their rescuers, uh, one by one, the first thing they did was to sedate each of these boys totally to sleep. They then strapped an oxygen mask on the boy. They tied his hands behind his back with zip ties. They even attached a handle to his back. And then they literally dragged each boy one by one through the flooded caves, carrying them like a duffel bag. At one point, these caves were so narrow, it was less than two feet wide. These boys were as good as dead. They had absolutely no chance to save themselves. They were totally dependent on the power and the wisdom of somebody who was far beyond what was soon to be their watery tomb. The Apostle Paul is saying something very similar here in Ephesians 2. But he's actually describing a situation that's far worse. He underscores that each and every one of us, every single human who's ever been born, is dead in sin. Like the sedated boys literally being dragged through the caves, there's absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves from death. Not just physical death, like the soccer team faced, but even worse, from eternal spiritual death. Life apart from God's blessing Life under his judgment forever. Last week we saw Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 rejoicing in God's great big plan for the universe. That God had sent his son Jesus to die in our place so that we could be forgiven. And that now God has given us his Holy Spirit to apply that forgiveness to us and to secure our future and eternal home with God. But now in chapter 2, Paul is pointing out why we needed such a dramatic rescue. Why God's gift of grace was so lavish, as he said in chapter 1. Paul lays out the bad news, but he's doing it to help us see the good news. To help us see how truly wonderful God's love and grace are for us. You can see that first in verses 1 to 10 here in chapter 2 where Paul really wants to underline for us the radical nature of God's salvation. The radical nature of God's salvation. Like I already mentioned, he starts out with the bad news. Verses 1 to 3, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in what you once walked. He says that all of us once followed the course of this world. We were just like everybody else. We were constantly concocting ways of rejecting God and escaping from Him, uh, coming up with all kinds of justifications for doing so, often deluding ourselves into thinking that we were actually pleasing God by doing all of this. 
Paul says in verse 2 that we are also under the influence of the devil himself. Uh, the devil burns with hatred for God and for all of his creation. And in some sense, God still allows him to wreak havoc all over the world in all of its chaotic misery. But nobody can claim that the devil made me do it. Verse 3 says that we used to be just like everybody else, one of the sons of disobedience who followed our own desires. In our world, uh, we think it's a good thing to follow your heart, follow your desires, but Paul is certainly saying uh, that this is a bad thing. Uh, If we claim today that I'm just living my truth, I'm just following my heart, I'm just enjoying myself, that's no excuse at all. Because Paul is saying that rebellion is the default state of the human heart. Rebellion against God feels normal. It feels natural. We experience it it as just being myself. Paul says that all of mankind are children of wrath by nature. Humans don't reject God. Uh, They don't turn on each other because they lack the right environment or the right education or the right society or the right institutions. Uh, They don't sin against God because they're from a certain culture or because they have a certain skin color or because they grew up in a bad family. Fundamentally, the reason that every single person rebels against God is because it's in our nature. We're rotten to the core, every single one of us. It's a horrific situation and we cannot rescue ourselves from it. But look at verse 4. This wonderful conjunction. He says, but God. Those two little beautiful words, but God. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. God took our dead hearts and he brought them to life. Why did he do this? Did he do it because some of us maybe weren't so bad? Because some of us were going to be really useful to him? Because some of us would be really pious or generous or impressive or powerful? No. It does not even say that God did this because there is something in us that he found really beautiful, uh, something really attractive. He said, wow, there's something that just really appeals to me about this. The reality, as Paul's already said, is that we're dead. We're rotting corpses. The only reason that God did all of this is because of his great love and mercy, because of something in him, not because of anything in us. That's it. Nothing to do with us, whether in the past or the present or even the future. A lot of people think that God must save them because of what they're going to be like later, because they're going to pay him back somehow. It's only because of his grace. Now, we often, when we, in the church, when we define grace, we say it's, it means undeserved kindness, which is true. That's what it is. But that's, uh, even that's a bit of a small, uh, short-sighted definition. It's not just that it's undeserved. Uh, we do all kinds of things for each other that are undeserved or uh, you know, unasked for. It's that God poured out his kindness on us, undeserved as it is, even though we were in the process of actively and spitefully rebelling against him. Paul is saying that God made us alive together with Christ even when we were totally dead, 
happy to be living against him. Paul is saying that when God made us alive with Jesus, that Jesus' resurrection life now becomes our life. And so Paul is saying that there's a sense in which we are already raised up with Jesus from the grave. Even now, Paul says, already seated with him in the heavenly places on the throne of the universe. Now, of course, we are not literally now raised from the dead. We are not now actually and literally enjoying the eternal bliss of heaven. But Jesus is. And because Jesus has united us to himself in love and mercy, Paul is saying that we are guaranteed to be there too. So much so that it's like it's already happened. You could take it to the bank, so to speak. Now, why did God do this? Again, it's not because he had to, not because there's something in us that deserves it, but only because he wanted to. Look at verse 7. Paul says that God did all this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so you see that God's ultimate goal for his whole creation is to show off. He wants to show off his amazing mercy and love towards sinful rebels who deserve death. Sinful rebels who were dead. Through all of eternity, you will never stop being amazed that God was and is so kind to us. It will never get old. At verse 8, Paul reiterates the radical nature of God's rescue. He says, by grace you've been saved through faith. He's already said that, but we like to forget that. And so he says, let me tell you again and explain even more what I mean. By grace you've already been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that nobody can boast. And so salvation with all of its eternal joys and benefits is 100% God's gift. We're saved through faith. That means simply through accepting what God has provided for us in his son. You open your hands and you say thank you. And you take it. That's faith. Now if you went around asking people in Austin today, who goes to heaven? Uh, the vast majority of them, including a great many people who claim to be Christians, would say, good people go to heaven. Nice people go to heaven. People who tried their best. People who looked out for other people. People who left the world better than when they found it. But every single one of those things is something that we do. And Paul says, you are not saved by works. You're not saved by anything that you are or anything that you do. Not even because you have chosen to believe. Paul says that even your faith, even your accepting of what God has given you, even your faith, is a gift from God. You are only and totally saved by grace. Just because God wanted to. That's it. None of us in heaven are going to be looking at ourselves and saying, wow, look at what I did. None of us will even be saying, wow, look at the decision that I was smart enough to make. Look at the faith that I was pious enough to have. The only person who will be boasting in heaven is God. God does all of it. 
He gets all of the credit. We're even more helpless than those sedated boys being dragged through the cave. Now God even gives us our good deeds, our good works. Verse 10 says that being saved by grace through faith does not mean that God doesn't care about what we do or how we behave. Paul says that God actually created us for good works. You were made, you were saved to obey God as a grateful response to his kindness, but never as a way to secure it. But even here, our obedience is a gift. Through and through, Paul says, we are God's workmanship. That's a word that often gets used in Greek to describe an artistic product, like a poem or a statue. We're God's workmanship. The good works for which we are created, Paul says, have already been prepared beforehand by God. We just have to walk in them. God's the one who gives and empowers our obedience to him. He doesn't save you and then say, okay, now you're on your own. You better try really hard. Don't mess this up because I was really nice to you. Uh, God goes with you and empowers you all the way through. In the second half of the letter, Paul's going to give a lot more details about what these good works look like. What does it look like to live in a way uh, that honors what God has given us, that is grateful for what God has given us in all kinds of practical, tangible, nitty-gritty ways. So that's the radical nature of salvation. We have a radical need. We're dead. We're unable to rescue ourselves like those boys in the cave. But we also have a radically gracious God. Salvation is his and his alone. There's nothing in us or about us that we can point to as a reason or as a basis for God's rescue. He gets all the credit. And that's a good thing. But now in verse 11, Paul shifts from salvation's radical nature to its corporate shape. And I don't mean like corporate like, uh, I don't know, Procter & Gamble is a corporation. I mean corporate like a community, a body. The corporate shape of salvation. Once again, Paul reminds the Ephesians and us of how desperately lost they were before highlighting God's wonderful gift. But now he frames all of it in terms of community and relationship. You see, God created humanity as a family so that our misery and our salvation are never just individual to me, but they are also always in relationship to other people. Paul says in verse 11 that the Ephesians need to remember that at one time they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. All of humanity has rebelled against God, but for a long time he had chosen only one family, only one nation to rescue, to reveal himself to. And that's, of course, the Jewish people of Israel, starting with Abraham. The Gentiles, that's a word that just means everybody else. Uh, the pagans. This is who the Ephesians were, and in some sense, of course, they still are. They are ethnically not Jewish, like most of us here today. God had specifically separated and distinguished Israel from the nations with certain tangible markers like circumcision and their diet and their clothing, even how they spent their time. And then as his own special people, he calls them to this distinctive life of obedience and worship. So that back then, anybody was welcome to join God's people. But if you wanted to do it then, you had to actually become Jewish. 
you had to take on these markers and these rituals. You had to leave behind your old identification with your former ancestors. These things were by God's command. They were good things. They were intended by him to reveal himself to the whole world through Israel and to prepare the world for the coming of his king, his Messiah. These are good rules. They served a good purpose for a time. And so Paul says, remember that at one time, you pagan Ephesians were excluded from the life and the community of Israel. You didn't know about the Messiah. You didn't know about God's promises to save sinful people by grace. He even says at the end of verse 12 that being outside of Israel meant that you were without hope, even that you were without God. The Ephesians had all kinds of gods. But Paul says you were without the one true God who really matters. To be outside of Israel was by definition to be separate from God, to be separate from his blessing. But once again, Paul highlights God's love against the backdrop of our radical need. Verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. Jesus' death on the cross secured peace and forgiveness with God for anybody who trusts in him. So that through Jesus, God has now set aside these rules that for a time separated Israel from the other nations. Uh, Over time in Israel, these were good commands, but they quickly became an excuse for many in Israel to smugly look down on the pagans. To say, oh, these degenerate Greeks and Romans, uh, they're so terrible. Look at these crazy ways they live and how stupid their worship is. Uh, Look at us. We're so wonderful. This is why God chose us, because we're enlightened and we're with it. But now in Christ, God is bringing all the world's peoples and nations and ethnicities together in his commonwealth, his community, his church. In verse 15, Paul says that Christ has torn down this wall of division and even hatred that ran so deep between Jews and Gentiles. Paul says that God did this so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body, killing the hostility. Now the division between Jews and Gentiles was just not any ordinary human division. It was a theological division. In some sense, it was sanctioned by God himself. But in uniting Jews and Gentiles together in Jesus, God is undermining any and every kind of human hatred and human hostility, whether it's because of race or culture or class or sex or education. God is assembling an international and multi-ethnic community around Jesus. Human history, our world today, is one long story of division, war, hatred, bitterness, hostility, abuse, manipulation, oppression. I was thinking the other day about how the very first story in the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, Adam and Eve sin, they get kicked out of the garden. You hear a little bit about how they have a couple of kids, but really the first thing that happens when they get out of the garden, it's not that you know Adam has a hard day at work and he's kind of tired. It's not that uh, you know Eve has trouble with self-esteem. She doesn't feel too good about herself. The very first thing that happens is one of their kids murders their other one. It's horrific. Right out of the garden, brothers are killing each other. 
In many ways, the sinful human family tries to bring a measure of unity to itself. Sometimes, by God's kindness, they do it with a degree of success. Uh, They try through politics, they try through business, they try through education. But human attempts, our world and our country is filled with many of them right now. Human attempts to fix the world and to fix themselves apart from God tend to only make the problems and the divisions worse. Ultimately, only Christ can and will unite humanity. And he's doing it in the church, the most diverse institution that has ever existed in the history of the world. In verse 18, Paul says that through Jesus, we all now have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul is saying that God has graciously created a new humanity. This is the new creation. It's beginning in the church. And he first describes the church with political terminology. In verse 19, he tells the Ephesians, you're no longer strangers and aliens. Uh, In the Greek and Roman world, these are two related but slightly different words. In the Greek and Roman world, a stranger was a foreigner who was unknown and often unwelcome, usually somebody who just kind of showed up in town. You say, well, who is that guy? He's not one of us. He's not from here. We don't really know who he is. We're not really sure if he should be here. Uh, That's a slightly different word than the word that here shows up as alien. An alien was a foreigner. They're still a foreigner. But they're in some sense kind of accepted. They've kind of settled down. Uh, Today, it might be something like somebody who has a green card. They kind of have a somewhat official status, but they're outside of the community. They don't have all of the rights. They don't have all the privileges of the natives. Uh, And back then, unlike today, uh, you could be an alien for generation after generation after generation. If you were born to aliens, you were also an alien, even if you had lived somewhere for hundreds of years. And so Paul says to the Ephesians, uh, to anybody really who trusts in Jesus, he says, that's what you used to be. You used to be strangers and aliens, excluded from the life of the community and from all of its rights and privileges. But now you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. In the Roman world, there were various degrees of citizenship. It wasn't like you're either a citizen or not. Uh, There was at least five or six different categories uh, from lesser to greater. Um, A slave uh, was not a citizen, but when a slave was freed, they could be freed to become a quarter of a citizen or half of a citizen. Uh, And then you go all the way up from there, all the way up to the emperor. But Paul is saying to the Ephesians, he says, you used to be totally outside. Now you're totally inside. He says, you're full citizens. You are full heirs of God's family. You're not just in the household the way that back then uh, an employee or a slave would have been part of the household. He's already told us back in chapter 1, you're part of the household as an adopted son, which means whether you are a male or a female, it means you are fully entitled to the entire inheritance. You are fully here. You belong. We are part totally of God's community, his kingly realm, his worldwide church, through all of its history, which one day will be united and at rest in the new creation. But then Paul shifts his metaphor in verse 20. Uh, He's been talking in terms of politics, but now he talks in terms of architecture. He says that this community, the church, is being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Uh, The point is that Jesus is the most important part of the whole building but that he has and he is building his church on the foundation of this message that he gave to the apostles and the prophets, which for us is now recorded and finished for us in the Bible. Uh, It means that you uh, can't really have Jesus without the apostles. You can't really have Jesus without the Bible. And you can't really have Jesus without the church. 
Uh, it's a package deal. You have a cornerstone and you have a foundation and you have a building on top of it. Uh, there's not really a point to have just a cornerstone by itself. There's not really a point to just have a foundation sitting out there in the field. It's about having a building. And so now on the foundation of Jesus and his word, God's building up his church. He's, Paul says, fitting together each stone perfectly from the whole sweep of history and from all around the world so that we might be God's dwelling place. And so I suppose there's a sense in which you could say that our church here in Austin is maybe one brick in the whole building. And if you get a magnifying glass and you zoom in and you look at the specks of sand there, it's like, oh, you know, there's me. I'm one of those little pieces. But then it's this huge building, God building bricks from all over the world, from all over history, this wonderful institution that God's building. God's showing his goodness and his beauty and his love in the way that we relate to each other in the way that we enjoy him by loving one another. And so every local church like ours is an outpost of this global and this historical church. And so every local church is meant to reflect Jesus' heart for peace and unity among a group of people who ordinarily would not share it. People who don't have much of a reason to be together out in the world, and yet in Jesus they've come together. And, and they don't just tolerate each other, they love each other. Paul is going to have a lot more to say about all this in chapters 4 and 5. Uh, but to sum it up, our church, this church, not only can, but must be one marked by genuine love and humility. Uh, by us going out of our way to serve and to know people who don't match our labels and our identities and our categories that we might have out in the world or that the world might assign to us. Paul says, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's talking to the Ephesian church, that local church there in Ephesus, but the same thing's true for us, for this local church, for you, Christ the King Presbyterian Church. Paul says, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God. And so as we continue to, to reflect on and pray about raising money to renovate this physical building, we need to remember that this building is only meant to serve the purpose and the mission of the ultimate building, the real building, the church through all of history. Uh, those rescue divers going to save those boys had an amazing mission. They were going to rescue this soccer team in the caves they were going down there in hopes that they could save these boys' lives. Not forever, but they were going to give them, hopefully, another five or six or seven decades of life in this world. A wonderful gift. All over the world, people were giving to these divers, giving their resources to help them do this. But the Church of Jesus has a vastly more amazing, a vastly more important mission. Not just to delay people's physical deaths, as important as that is, but to save them from death. But even more than that, not just to save you from physical death, although that's one thing that Jesus does, but to save you from eternal and spiritual death, separation from God forever. The church is the place where you find and you enjoy and you reflect God's radical saving grace for sinners. There's nothing else being built on the foundation of Jesus and his apostles like the churches. Paul's not ashamed to talk about how wonderfully unique the church is and we shouldn't be either. The church is where we and many people in our community can and will find eternal peace with God. 
and so also peace with each other. And so what a privilege it is to be a citizen of this precious commonwealth. And what a joy it should be to participate in its mission to give towards its work in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful mission of the church. It's not our mission. Uh, It's not our work. It's not something that we've just figured out on our own. This is from you. We struggle in many ways to do what we should. Your church looks very silly and foolish to the world. Uh, It looks very weak sometimes. It's full of a great deal of sin and failure. But Father, you love your church. Jesus, you have united yourself to us. You are drawing us together from not just around this city or this neighborhood, but from the entire world. We rejoice, Jesus, in what you're doing in your church. Help us to see the glory of your work here as we see how deeply needy we are for your mercy. For we ask it in your name. Amen.